0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org. Exodus 31, chapter 31,
1: verses 1 through 11. Sorry about that. First time host. (laughs) Still learning. Here we go. Exodus 31, 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri." The son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge in all craftsmanship, to devise artistic design, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Holiab, the son of Amahashmak. Thank you. Of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. the mercy seat that it is on that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils. And the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron and the priest, and the garments of his sons for their services as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Good morning, everyone. You guys give a hand clap to Nathan. It's not easy for your first time to host to be going through the genealogy names, all right? That's not a it's not an easy task. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to say welcome to you if it is your first time. We're glad you're here. We hope you have a wonderful time. Uh, 60 of our ladies are on a retreat right now, and uh, they're enjoying themselves. And so if you get a chance to chat with them later on next week or something, ask them how everything went. We've heard some great reports. Excited for them to be Uh, enjoying their time together. But before we jump in, we've been working through the book of Exodus. We're continuing that work this morning, and I'd like to pray for us and just pray that the Lord would speak to us through his word uh, as we work through chapter number 31, the first half of it. So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray for us, and then we'll just jump right in. Father, we humble ourselves as your children before your mighty hand and the truth of your word. We thank you that you've preserved your word, that we don't have to look elsewhere, but that you've revealed yourself, and over the course of thousands of years and multiple authors, you have preserved a continuity to your word that is both timeless and unmatched. We're so grateful that we get to come now and humble ourselves in submission to it, and so Lord, according to your word and your promises, you're here with us as as we're gathered in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us each, both individually and corporately. Help us together as a body, but also help us as temples of your Holy Spirit individually, that which we need, that we know we need, and that which we need that we know not. God, meet those needs we ask right now. Open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see. We long not merely to go through the ritual of gathering, but we long to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we, we do ask for that great gift in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there are very few passages in Scripture, um, in, in both this book and all of Scripture, that give us a more clear and fundamental view of a specific topic. And that topic's God's creative purpose for mankind what are we on the earth for Um, what are we to be doing and and you may be thinking well that's kind of odd because this passage as Nathan was reading it with all of its names it seems to be one of those that you would just kind of like roll through you know it's uh, okay I get it there's got to be a guy who builds some stuff he's that guy but there's so much to this passage and I want to start generally and then work our way into some of the specifics of it But I want to start with a 30,000-foot view, and in order to do that, let's remember the context of where we're at in this story. Moses is on the mountain with God, and God has just given him a litany of very intricate, very distinct expectations about how to build the tabernacle and the court, the surrounding court, for his presence you have to imagine Moses trying to get all of this down. So we kind of picture the, uh, the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone. But this stuff had to have been written down very precisely, and the Lord has just been rattling this off to Moses on top of the mountain. And you got to think, if Moses is human, and we know that he is, he's probably thinking, who's going to build this? Who's good enough to build this? Or how about this? Where are we going to get all the unique materials. We're in the wilderness. We're in the desert. You know, this is not like we're going to go to Michael's later and, you know, get this stuff, get the fine twined linens. Okay. that He's probably thinking these things and yet he's just writing it down. When I was young, my, my grandmother, who's a wonderful person, she was the most kind woman um, I've ever known. She took care of me, my brother and my sister and I often after school. And she would just Never stop. All day long, she was on her feet until about 6 o'clock every night after, you know, dinner was done, and, and yes, if you know, as, as you get older, you know, dinners start to get early and earlier. Before you know it, you're eating dinner at 3. And uh, so at 6 o'clock, she would sit down, and she would pull out her crochet book, and she crocheted, and she would watch Wheel of Fortune. And that's what she did. Every single night, without fail. I always joked about it because my grandfather and her sat next to each other on rocking chairs. And, and he would be sitting there drinking his beverage of choice and, uh, and kind of ranting about, you know, he was getting ready to watch the news. He would be ranting about the politics. And my grandmother would ter- turn her hearing aid all the way down, and she'd crochet. And she used to make us these big, this is before, you know, beanbags and stuff were really, uh, I guess, all that pot. She would make us these massive, crocheted, you know, it was like animals filled with cotton, and every Christmas we would get this, I, I remember I got this massive elephant and it was a beanbag, and she made this thing. And I, and I remember thinking, you know, I want to see what she's doing over here. And I, it took me about three minutes to quit crocheting because it actually takes coordination, you know, and skill and patience and all of those things. And I was reminded of her when I was reading through this passage because this is no small task that God's bringing to Moses to build. And he says, I want you to make it according exactly to the pattern. Now, if you're a man in the room, and ladies too, but guys, and you're doing a project at your house you know, um, it it needs to be about as good as you're willing to accept. You know, or I've worked with some guys, a um, good friend who will be working at my house, and I'll say, hey, does it look good? And he says, I can't see it from my house. It looks good from here. Nail it. That's kind of how you handle things. And there's there's different kinds of work, right? You can kind of get away with that. Uh, You know, I can't tell you how many building projects I've had. I was like, well, trim will cover it. How big is your trim? About seven feet. You know, just <laughs> trim will get it. That's not this project. This is intricate. This is detailed. And God's very specific. I want you to make it exactly how my pattern is. You know, measure, measure twice, cut once was probably to the nth degree here because he's telling you how many cubits it has to be exact. And the reason I want to give you that context is because he follows that up specifically by naming a couple guys that he has chosen for this project. And I want to read to you again, as Nathan's already read, what he says about why I've chosen these guys. Let's read chapter 31. I just want to read the first few verses. And I want to focus in on the first guy. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name, Bezalel. So called this guy out by name. The son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Very specific, you know, kind of reminds you of that gladiator scene with Russell Crowe, you know, it's like... You know, I am the Maximus Decimus Meridius, you know, leader of the armies of the legions of the north, whatever he says, long, long line, list of titles. Now this is the key though, verse three, I filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood to work in every craft. I've called him by name and I have filled him with the spirit of God to do the work that I have set him out to do. Now let's break this down big picture first. I want you to call back in your memory. We're not going to go there for the sake of time, but call back in your memory to the very first two chapters of the Bible. What do we have? In the account of creation, we have in Genesis chapter number one, Verses 26 through 28, the Bible records that God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 28 says that he commands them after he's created them to go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and take dominion over, and then he lists out all the other creatures in creation. And the final verses there are that God then says, And I have given you for your food, your sustenance, the strength that you'll need to accomplish this, all of these seed-bearing plants for food. So what do we have? Creation, command, provision for that which is commanded, right there. But then we have in chapter number two, a more detailed version of this, more poetic but more detailed, where the Bible records that God formed man out of the dust of the earth, and how did he make him a living creature, He breathed, so same same word, connotations and etymology as spirit, breathed life into his nostrils. So he becomes a living creature to be able to accomplish what? Well, then he sets man immediately in the garden to work it. Now, I know this is kind of an unpopular, uncommon idea. Oftentimes we think, well, one day when we picture eternity, we picture heaven, we're like, it's when I finally won't have to go to work. But I want to remind you, the Bible doesn't say that work is part of the fall work is pre-fall commanded by God as something glorious and he in fact calls it very good it's the next chapter that records that the curse on work and on man was that he would now work and that work would be difficult he would by the sweat of his brow work meaning that creation would now work against him in this work where as before it was a complimentary opportunity So what do we see? I want to show you guys this direct correlation. If you see Exodus 31, what does he say? I've chosen this man. I've called him out by name, kind of like Adam. And I've poured my spirit out into him, kind of like breathing into Adam's nostrils. And I've commanded him to make this what? This tabernacle, this very intricate design, just like Adam was commanded. And then what does he do? I've given him all the skill to do it, all the craftsmanship to do it, everything he needs to be able to accomplish it, I've given him to do. He says, Adam, I've given you every seed-bearing plant so you can eat and I'm equipping you to be able to go out in strength and do that which you've been called to do. You're in my image, now go and spread my glory. Now why is it that I started by saying that this passage gives us more indication than maybe a few, few others in the Bible about our ultimate purpose as man? Well, that's why I wanted to start in Genesis. It's true and right when the Westminster Catechism tells us the chief end of man, or the purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think that that's very concise, it's well-written. But I will say also, it's impossible to parse that out unless we ask ourselves, what is the active response or action that we are required to take in order to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Meaning that God did not set us into the world to then, lay back nicely and be fed until our bellies are full. And that's how we glorify God, enjoy him forever. He sends us out to do something, to act in a certain way, to respond to his grace in a way that glorifies him in our enjoyment of him. Or another way to put that would, would be that it's impossible to glorify or to enjoy God apart from joining him in the work that he's doing. So what do we see in Genesis and in Exodus 31? If God calls us to it, he then will provide the means, the skill, and the motivation for us to accomplish it. Now, I want to go back to Exodus here because I think that we have to frame the entire situation in the context of Exodus so we know there is a difference between God and his commands in the garden and God and his commands here in Exodus, and that's namely that one is about enjoying that which is, and one is about restoring that which has been lost. Enjoying that which is, as God creates all of mankind and all that the universe has to offer and then says it's very good and then this is before the fall. Now Moses is receiving the command about having a dwelling place with God again and yet he's not exactly in Eden. <laughs> That's euphemistic, Right? What's the juxtaposition? One's a garden and one's a wilderness. They're in the middle of the desert. One was perfect and one was deeply broken. One is everybody around you, including the animals, are not threats to you. And if you read the book of Numbers, everywhere Israel goes, there's like armies chasing them around. And these aren't soldiers. These are farmers, okay? They're getting into wars with giants. It's not exactly your ideal sparring partner. In the garden, Adam and Eve are protected, and here we have Moses and the children of Israel. They're completely vulnerable. They don't have borders that they can protect or garrisons or castles, you know? The only structure they're going to have is a mobile tabernacle built for God's presence. There's, there's nothing else, and they're just going to wander around for 40 years like this. In one sense, Adam and Eve are in the very presence of God, and, and Moses and the children of Israel have been exiled from that presence, which is typified in their wilderness wandering. And, why is this important for us to note? Well, it's important for us to note because when we think about work, there's going to be a conjoining, a tandem of these two ideas. There's going to be a context for our work that is simultaneously enjoying something that's been found. You know, I'm calling you out of Egypt, my children. Now you're going to be my people. That's something, that's something to enjoy. And also, restoring something that's been lost. And at this really does typify the Christian life better than anything else, right? That we are, as laborers, both enjoying that which God has done by finding us, redeeming us, and then we're also called to go out into a world that's broken and fallen and seek the restoration and redemption of that which is far from God and lost. Now, to get back to the boots on the ground for us and and when we think about work, we have a difficult, intense relationship with work, most of us, right? Right? Like I know when I start talking about work, some of you are like, this is the weekend, dude. Like I got a couple more hours. Some of you, you already started to get anxious before you got here because you know all the work that's waiting for you when you get there, okay? You're probably thinking about it right now. And usually there's two ends of the spectrum here with work. One is that we despise it. Okay, there's a lot of movie tropes like this. You know, I joked with the 9 a.m. service, like there's a whole series of movies about guys that are conspiring to kill their bosses because they hate their jobs so much. Uh, And this is a common trope. And on the other side, which also has a lot of common uh, literary and, and movie tropes, is um, you love your job so much that the rest of your life gets tossed to the wayside and you can't even live it because you become enslaved to the job. This is like a perfect example of this Will be Robin Williams and Hook right? He's actually Peter Pan, but he's lost all, you know, ability to even remember that side of his life. Because why? He's a lawyer now. He's always on the phone. His wife's always trying to get him. He can't even show up to his kids' baseball games because he's got to do this next thing. And that's the whole point of the movie. It's him kind of getting out of that into something else that, you know, the, the author or the director of the movie is trying to kind of hint at this lost innocence, this lost place of enjoyment of the things that are because he's a slave to his job. And I want to say that sometimes we, we look at that person who's a slave to their job, and it's so obvious that that's wrong and that there's something morally you know, wrong about it that we miss that both sides of the equation make work their master. One hates their master, and one d- dutifully tries to serve their master even if it's a harsh, cruel taskmaster. But both of them are serving a master, and that master is work. And it, it's right at that core, faulty premise that the Christian should step in and say, wait, that's not how it was meant to be. You see, the way to redeem the joy of our calling to work is not to encourage everyone to find that one job that uniquely fits your skills. It's not to focus on finding a job that you feel is meaningful to you. Now, I know I just said some things that you have already read in a self-help section of Barnes & Noble, and it makes you angry for me to say that. And I will say, both of these things can be helpful in their own right, but they're always gonna fall short of the mark, at least one or two steps short of the mark because they fail to get to what's behind those things, what's at the core of meaning and fulfillment. Well, what is that? God stands at the very center. There is no way to redeem joy and fulfillment and vocation or anything you put your hands to unless you start with the God who created you and called you by name, appointed you to a task and gifted you to accomplish it. It's not a sustaining joy for us to just be skilled, okay? Unless we recognize the one and honor the one who gave us those skills. It's not a sustaining joy for us to do meaningful work unless we get to the bottom of who it is that defines meaning. What makes it meaningful? So even if we were to acknowledge that some work results in joy because the purpose of the work is kind of endued with this inherent value. This is an example like moms and dads. Parenthood, right? Parenthood. You're like, well, that's like endued with value just in its essence. You get the reward because you're looking in the eyes of the reward, right? And here's what I would say. Parenthood is a glorious work. It's a joyful work. But the question you have to ask Is not whether or not it has that quality. Who has endowed it with that quality? Who gave it that unique quality? Why is it essential that the Bible starts with the family unit and God being the one who creates it? Because it's him who has endowed that work with unique and valuable meaning. Now, you might be saying, okay, Court, this is all fundamental. Why is that important? Well, it's important because if you fall short of here, we make ourselves vulnerable to despair, disillusionment, bitterness, anger, which ends up infesting every area of our life. If we, don't, if we see that which we put our hands to as futile, or if we see it as meaningful, but we don't think about the author behind the meaning, that ultimately we're vulnerable, and we will end up infecting other parts of our, of our lives with the disillusionment that is not maybe going to come, is sure to come. It's sure to come brother in the room says, I enjoy my job because I'm skilled at it uniquely. And I know some people who are just really good at what they do. And I would say that's amazing and I'm happy for them. But what happens to the master piano player who loses his hands if that's the only way you can find meaning? It brings to mind the, the uh, I think it was in the early 2000s, but it's a movie called The Pianist. And it's the Polish man in World War II. He's a master piano player, the best in the world crowds thronged to hear this guy play until Nazi Germany comes in the blitzkrieg and destroys Poland and it basically goes through his whole life of in and in and out of concentration camps just terrible suffering and towards the end of the movie he finds himself back in his hometown in Poland and everything is destroyed he makes his way into a house he's starving he makes his way into a house and he finds that there's in this house of all rubble a piano had been preserved And he cracks open this piano. There's a Nazi soldier who ends up coming into this, and it's a real interesting interplay. But what happens in this moment is, even the most gifted and uniquely talented piano player in the whole world, what meaning is there if the song you play, you play for no one? And of course, the Christian's answer to that is, no matter if there be no one there, there is one who hears. That's why it's important. There's a hearer, even if there be no audience. God sees. That's how Exodus starts. All the children of Israel are crying out in their enslavement. And God, what? He sees, he knows, he hears, he responds. You see, this passage does a wonderful job of framing this for us because what does it connect? It connects work and worship. Unless we connect work and worship, we'll always be susceptible to discouragement. And this passage shows us in an almost unignorable way. What is the work they're doing? Building the house of worship. That's what's happening here. And who's building it? The one whom God appointed. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter three. This is, by the way, I would think for anyone, this is a great memory verse. Colossians three, verses 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily. Okay, first of all, very, very all-encompassing. What does this... uh, what does this admonition entail? Everything you do. Well, how much is everything? All of it. Is there anything outside of that? Draw two concentric circles. One is everything, and anything outside of everything, you put your quarter in the everything pile. That's what this has to do with. Everything you do, work heartily. Now, we don't typically use the word heartily unless you're talking about like my body type, which is hearty. But this means with your whole heart, okay? You gotta you got be thinking, the Jewish people would have heard this as, Shema language, right? Your whole self. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, heartily. And who are you working for? As for the Lord and not for men. Older translations say, not for earthly masters. Knowing that from the Lord, you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Well, in what? In everything you do. In my greeting at the church? Yes, And in everything else that you do, you're serving the Lord Jesus or we're serving some other earthly master, even if it's you. And some of us have got to come to grips with the fact that when we look in the mirror, we are are harsh taskmasters of ourselves if we do not submit to the Lord Jesus. Some people might say, well, it's easy for you to say, well, you're a pastor, of course, you know, so of course you serve Jesus. No, that scripture says, Everyone may get different names on their paychecks on who's issuing it, but God is the one who stands as our master and boss. He's the one issuing everything. So the question be, what is it that you have that God has given? Answer, all things. <laughs> what is it that you have that God has not given? Answer, no thing. Your job? Yeah, he gave that. Your spouse? Yeah, he gave that. Your kids? Yeah, he gave that a wonderful mental acuity, he gave that. Wait, baby Einstein didn't do that? No, God did that. God gives every good and perfect gift. That's what the book of James says. It comes down from the father of lights. And this is a wonderful line, who shows no partiality in his giving, just generous. Now this changes everything. It means that whatever you and I do, it can be glorifying to God because the work itself is worship to God. And if it be worship to God, that means our fulfillment does not come from the work, but it can come through the work. Now, this is key, because what's the source? It's like if you're standing before the Grand Canyon, and you stand before the Grand Canyon, or maybe if you haven't been there, think of something really majestic. Like you stand before it, and you just don't want to talk. You're just like, this is, whoa. What's happening in that moment? Well, awe-inspired worship is happening. Now, the question is, this thing's calling out to you, this creative, majestic monstrosity. Here's the key. That does not mean that that thing is worthy of worship. It means that it is an instrument through which the God who made it is communicating to you. It's the instrument. A song can be great, but there's a writer of the song, right? So the, the writer of the song is trying to communicate something to you something beautiful, but don't terminate the worship on the beautiful thing, but on the one who makes beauty. Ah, so if you start at the source, it doesn't matter how many electric cords you plug together. If you unplug from the source, you ain't getting power. Even if it's very intricately done, you have to be plugged into the source. No work can have, or you cannot find fulfillment in any work unless you're plugged into the source who's created, called, and appointed you to it. Okay, now let's get specific because that's pretty general still. That's 30,000 feet. What is this passage about though? What kind of work? Well, this work is particularly about requiring someone to build God's house skillfully, a place for his presence, a house of worship. Now, I want to remind you about some theological groundwork we've been laying ever since we started Exodus, because Exodus has old covenant, new covenant themes, and we've been kind of bouncing back and forth. Remember, the dwelling place for God's spirit in the old covenant would have been a temple or a tabernacle, a physical place that was built. And that physical building needed priests to tend to it. The dwelling place for God's spirit in the new covenant, now that Christ has died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended, is the church, the ecclesia, the very people of God, whom the New Testament calls a kingdom of priests sent out into the world to proclaim the good news of Christ's dominion and authority that he's extending now through grace. First Peter chapter two says this. I want to read verses four through five. Peter says it like this. As you come to him, him being Christ, who was a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as what? A spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. Now, I could go on and on. I could run through the New Testament. We are to be building up the body of Christ. We are to be ambassadors for the kingdom of Christ. We are to be stewards of the mysteries of God. The entire New Testament is just riddled with how we are to be building something that is a dwelling place for God, and that that is both individual and corporate. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we together are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's just riddled throughout the New Testament. And we're supposed to be doing a specific work to build that up. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 3, one of the most famous passages, where he calls himself a co-laborer of Christ, by the way, which is shocking. He says that in the end that he will be held to an account when he stands before God on how he built upon the foundation that Christ gave him. And he thought himself to be building a spiritual house every single ministry moment, every single day of his life. Now, I want to go to a parable of Jesus to kind of help to give color to this. Let's go to Matthew. You can turn here, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. The reason I tell you to turn here is if you do have your Bibles, we're going to read through about 16 verses. It's nice to kind of walk along, but it will be behind me. This is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. This is called the parable of the talents. And I want to give you a fair warning here. This usually isn't one that like, you know, finds itself on mantle places or anything of that sort. Okay. You're going to notice that this parable is like, it kind of feels out of place for Christ to say some of the things he says here, but we're going to get into why Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30. It starts like this. This is Jesus talking about the kingdom. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them, his property to one, he gave five talents and to another two and to another one to each, according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents were at once, uh, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground in his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received five talents came forward bringing five talents more. And he said, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy, that's key, of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents here, and I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will much more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, now you know why I told you it wasn't the sweetest text. Seems backwards, right? Jesus talks about blessed be the poor. Talk about being generous. And here we see Jesus is obviously the master who takes, he says, he who has little, I'm taking what little he has. And I'm going to give it to the one who has the most. Now what's going on here? Well, let's make sure we catch the main theme of the parable. At the very heart, this parable is simple. God is a giver. God gives without partiality, graciously to all. And because God's a giver, we are called to be his stewards. That's the point of the parable. God's the owner of the property. And therefore, everything that he gives, he's giving, but still remains the owner. Now, I want you to catch this, why I say something like everything you have is God's. Because every breath you take out and every breath you take back in, God owns that. This is why Paul had a theology that said you were bought with a price. You are not your own. He's saying God's the one who has your life he's the owner and therefore you're the steward of that life or as the catechism says what is our only hope in life and death that we are not our own but we belong to god body and soul our hope is that we're his so he has an interest in us because you and i sometimes we don't act we think we're acting in our self-interest but we're pretty self-destructive but god being the owner gives freely and then we're called to be stewards And so what happens here in the parable is the man who did nothing with that which the master had given him at the end of the day, his, he questioned the character of the master. He says, you reap where you did not sow. Wait a minute. You're on my field. You gather where you have no interest gathering. Wait a minute. You have a job I gave you. He says, so here's your money back. And God's response to that is he's a wicked and a slothful servant. Now, Let's work through why. God has filled you with his spirit. If you're a Christian in the room, that means that all your abilities, all your skills, all your craftsmanship, everything that's great is his. And is to be leveraged to build up his spiritual house his dwelling place, which manifests itself both individually and corporately. It manifests itself in your own personal life and amongst those who you're sitting around. Now you may be thinking as like a maverick Christian, listen, I'm all about me and Jesus, but you know, these people around me, I don't even halfway know them. Some of them smell funny. God is as interested in you growing personally as he is in your role in and interest in the person next to you. Those are interconnected. So let's walk through them. Individually, if we are to be good stewards, that means that we must use our entire self, mind, heart, body, soul, strength to bear fruit that glorifies God. Laboring in scripture, laboring in prayer, laboring in good works like generosity, service, leadership, mercy, denying our sin, leaning into the grace that's been given to us in Christ. And the reason that I mentioned vocation and I started with your job is because for some of you, if you work a typical nine to five job, that means that a third of your adult life is going to be spent in this thing. So it's hard for me to imagine that God is not interested in a third of your life. He is. But what about corporately? Well, similarly, we are meant to use our whole self to encourage and admonish each other to bear fruit to take the calling to make disciples seriously, that just as Adam and Eve were called to go be fruitful and multiply, Jesus, before his ascension, said, go ye therefore and make disciples. And he didn't just mean the 11. He didn't just mean, you know why I know that? Because he says in John 17, we read it last week, I am praying not just for these, but for everyone who will believe on my name through them. You're not merely called to be a fan of Jesus' work. You know, this is easy for us. where We say, you know, I really love what the church is doing. It's really good. But I'm not really, you know, I don't really do it. I'm just happy that someone's doing it. No, you're not merely a supporter of the kingdom. You're a co-laborer with Christ. You're in the king's court. You're a soldier in the king's army called to co-labor alongside your brothers and sisters. This is not like possible. It's not Probable, it is certain. It's what the Bible simply declares. And what that means is all of us have been given the talents. And you may be saying, hey, listen, you know, people have way more than I do, way more to leverage. And the Bible actually records that. Some have five, some have two, some have one. People like me have ounces, a lot less than others. The question is, what will you do with that which is given to you? You don't get to decide the hand you're dealt, but you have to play the cards. Or the wonderful Lord of the Rings quote, what does Gandalf say? Frodo, it is not for us to decide the time with which we have been given, but what we will do with the time we've been given. Because Frodo says, I wish the ring never came to me. I don't even want to be a part of this. He says, you don't get to decide if the ring comes to you. You have to decide what will you do with it. My prayer this morning is that we would see this passage in the call that comes with it. God himself has called you by name. He knows you. This is the reason the New Testament's filled with God calling out disciples by name. Come, Matthew, come to, you know, Matthew's the tax collector to everybody else. He's Matthew to the Lord. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Martha, Martha, why are you anxious and troubled about many things? Only one thing is necessary. Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. These are, he's naming them because he wants you to know he knows your name, calls you out by name. He's filled you with his spirit and he's given you all that you need to accomplish the work that he's laid out before you. And so the, the thing that I have to say as a pastor that no pastor wants to say, but I'm a bad pastor if I don't say it, is at the end of the day, you have been given much, and all of us will stand before God and give an account. That's not fluffy talk. It's real talk. It's, it is true. It is as true as the sun will rise tomorrow. We will stand before God and give an account. And so we must ask the question what are we doing with that which God has given? Or maybe another way to put it is whose kingdom are we advancing? The kingdoms of men will dissolve the kingdoms of men will fall. And one day we will stand before the true and right king and give an account. My prayer is the spirit of Christ will compel us to reflect this morning on that question if you're a Christian. And then in closing, I want to end with something that's here in Exodus, but it's kind of hidden. and and But, but it's kind of hidden because you have to spend a little bit of time and we've been doing it this entire uh, journey that we've been taking through the book. And that is, what about the meaning of the names of these guys? And I'm just going to focus on Bezalel because it's a wonderful reminder. It's why I say this passage tells us more than we need to even, more than we could ever imagine about work. The name Bezalel means in Hebrew, the shadow of God's presence. Yuri, which is part of his genealogy, means my fiery light or flame or Yah's fire, Yah's light, Yahweh's light. Ur er means a nobleman, a freeman. Okay, think of royalty. And then finally, of the tribe of Judah, that's, we know, the kingly tribe. That's where David came from. So I want to take that and I want to get, maybe, let's read, let's, this is my kind of con- contextual commentary. Maybe it says something like this. There is coming a nobleman from the tribe of Judah. He will be my fiery light and lamp. He will dwell in, in the shadow of my presence and he will build an eternal house where I will dwell. Now that sounds like someone, but in case you don't, you think I'm crazy, let's read Isaiah chapter 11 verses one through nine. Watch this. This is a prophecy. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Why the stump? Jesse is David's father. The kingdom of Israel gets cut down and sent into Babylonian captivity. And after that, who shows up on the scene? Jesus under Roman occupation. And he's a bloom out of the stump of Jesse from the tribe of Judah and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now think of Exodus 31, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Oh, like this craftsman, the spirit of what? Wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That sounds familiar. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees, decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That means the scriptures, the word of God, the gospel. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Listen to this uh, poetic explanation of peace in Christ's kingdom. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth, this is key, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, what does that sound like? That the nations may know that I am the Lord. I will appoint one who will build my house. We can work with confidence in whatever we put our hands to because Jesus, the chief architect, will build God's house Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 Jesus says I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it what did he not say I will appoint a committee and I hope it works out no Christ will build his church the gates of hell will not prevail you can go ahead and write that down take it to the bank he will do this Number two, we can rest well knowing that God's work in us will be accomplished. Philippians chapter one, verse six, Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how badly you feel like you are absolutely messing up your Christian walk. Christ will bring to completion that which he began because he's not in the business like me of starting projects around the house and not finishing them. Finally, this is an invitation into a life filled with the most glorious and meaningful work every single day because it's eternal work. It's not coincidental that Jesus finds Peter out on a boat trying to go back to being a fisherman, even though Jesus told him, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter felt like a failure because he had denied the Lord three times, as many of us feel often in our lives, if we're honest. And Jesus doesn't come back and ask him if he's made his penance with his works, but he asks him, do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know that I love you. Then go back and feed my sheep. Go back and be a fisher of men. If something's keeping you on the sidelines this morning, my prayer is that the calling of Christ would be like the calling of the Lord Jesus to Peter on the shores. If you're not a believer, the most important work that you could never accomplish but had to be accomplished for you was done by Jesus on the cross. I implore you, if you're not a believer, to receive the rewards of Christ's work by trusting in him. If you are a believer, this is my hope for you. Consider the assignment of your Lord. We are not merely to be gazing up into heaven waiting for his return. The angels said, go and do what he commanded you to do. So receive the invitation from Jesus back into the field. Be certain that he calls you by name, not generally. Be sure that you are gifted by him for that which he calls. Or as Augustine most famously quoted, give what you command me, Lord, and then command whatever you will. He has. First, he gives what he commands, and then he says, now give it back. You have what he has commanded. Finally, most importantly, be certain that Christ is a king that finishes what he starts. And that means that you're not the exception. You're the rule to that. If you're a believer in the room, he began something in you. You may be thinking that it's two steps or three steps forward, four steps back, two steps forward, three steps back. He will complete what he started. And my prayer for you is that you would maybe stop biting against the hand that's working, the craftsman as he works, but join him. Or at least sit still while he does his work. Let me pray for us. Father, I just confess to you we need you more than we could ever imagine to bring meaning to our lives. Holy Spirit, would you now open the eyes of our hearts that what you're offering to us is so much greater than we could ever imagine. Give us great confidence and courage to confront the areas of our own heart where we are building a kingdom of sandcastles while your offer stands to enter into the new Jerusalem the kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. God, help us. And finally, remind my brothers and sisters in the room who are weary in well-doing that their labor is not in vain, but you are a righteous rewarder, faithful and true. In Jesus' name, amen.